Samuel. Go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Samuel 17. Uh, we are in this series called Sticks and Stones. And I know we're three weeks in. This is just our third week, and we haven't even explained why it's called that. And you're not going to find out today. So you got to be here next week. Next week, you'll find out why our series is called Sticks and Stones. Just letting you know. Uh, so be here next week. But we've been studying uh, the life of this guy named David. And, and David is such an interesting figure in Scripture. And he's got this kind of famous event that we're coming up to. This we commonly call David and Goliath, right? He's going to kill this giant, win this awesome victory for, for Israel, for God's people. Uh, and so what we've been doing is we've been looking at the story behind the Goliath. We've been looking at what happened in his life leading up to that moment when God selected him and allowed him and empowered him to slay this giant. What was it about David? Out of all of the thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of men in Israel, why was David the one that was selected for this opportunity? And we've seen that there is a story behind his glory. And so in week one, if you weren't here, uh, we, we looked at this one word, anointing. Uh, it's, a, it's a Christianese word. It's a word that we throw around a lot, but we may not understand what it really means. Uh, and anointing is, is God's favor and God's responsibility. It's when God places something on you to empower you and equip you to be used by him. And, and so we see David's anointing as he's anointed king of Israel. And we discovered that we are anointed to accomplish our assignment. That, that each of us has an assignment that God has given us. Your assignment is probably different than mine. In fact, I guarantee you it's different than mine. Uh, and your anointing, therefore, is different than mine. Uh, but each of us has an anointing to accomplish our assignment. In other words, God's not asking you to do anything that's impossible for you. If God is asking you to do it, he's going to enable you to do it. Uh, but we also discovered last week that it's not just about anointing. Uh, it's also about ability. See, God's given us ability. He's given us gifts. We discovered last week that God wants us to grow our gifts, that God wants me to grow my gift, that, that the gifts that God has given you, those talents, those skills, those abilities, they didn't come fully developed. They came some assembly required. And, and so that God is expecting us to work on those things, to, to harness those things. And so this week our, our we're going to have another A word uh, for you uh, as we continue on in this series. And today we're talking about attitude, attitude. Um, today we're, we're going to discover from the life of David as we get to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17 will actually get to, in this chapter, the, the moment of the battle, the David and Goliath famous moment. But we're actually not going to get to that part of chapter 17 today. That will be next week. Today we're going to the, the moment where David meets Goliath. The, David, the, the moment where David first discovers this giant and, and what is going on there. And we're going to see some things about David's attitude. You know that God cares about your attitude? A lot of times we use that word like in the context of like, like a, a dad or a mom sitting down with their teenager, right? You need to change your attitude, right? Like my, any parent ever had that conversation, amen? Need to have that conversation. Uh, man, a lot of times that's how we kind of think of attitude is like in a, that, a, that a kid has a bad attitude. Um, but, but I think that God cares about our attitude. In fact, I think that God cares even more about my attitude than he does my actions. Shared with you the verse just a little while ago. Jesus says the greatest commandment is that I would love him with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. In loving him, is there some action that's going to come for sure? But before love is an action, love is an attitude. So I think that our attitude uh, is massively important. I think it was Pastor Charles Stanley who first said that he's convinced 
that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I respond to it. It's about our attitude. Uh, And and so we're going to see in the life of David, David's attitude was marked by one specific word. David was a man of passion. David was a man of passion. In fact, uh, if we zoom out from this experience and fast forward in David's life, we'll discover that, that David was passionate about honoring his king. Saul was the king. He'd been anointed king of Israel. And even though David was, was already chosen to replace him, David was passionate about continuing to honor Saul. Even as Saul hunted David down, even as Saul ran David into a cave, even as Saul hurled spears at David's head trying to take him out, David was passionate about honoring the king. In fact, in one scene, we see David and his men huddled in, in a cave on the run from, from King Saul. And, and King Saul's men are just outside. And, and David says, you know what, I'm going to go up. I'm going to sneak into the camp, and I'm going to get right next to Saul, and I'm going to cut off a piece uh, of the bottom of his robe, and I'm going to send it to him. And, and why did he do that? Because David was trying to tell the king, Saul, I'm not your enemy. If I wanted you dead, I could have killed you. But I honor you as my king. I want you to know that I'm for you, even though you're against me. So David was passionate about honor. David was also passion, passionate about parenting. He was passionate as a father. We, we see as we fast forward even further into his life, towards the end of his life, one of his sons, Absalom, starts a revolt, decides, I'm going to overthrow my dad. I should be the king. He, he's old. He's past his prime. I'm the new thing. And so he begins to rally followers. And as David's men go to put down this revolt, David says, don't lay a finger on Absalom. Even though he's rebellious, even though he's a punk, even though he stepped out of what's right, that's my boy. And I love him. I'm passionate about my son. As Absalom's on the run from David's men, he, he gets hung in a tree. Uh, he had long hair, and his hair got caught up in the tree, and he actually dies in that tree. And, and David's response as this rebellious child dies, he says, I wish it had been me. I wish it had been me. Why? Because David was a man of passion. And he was passionate about fatherhood. He was passionate about parenting. So, so in this story, we're going to see some things about David's passion. Um, if you've ever read this story or heard this story, uh, I bet most of us in here have, you, you've got to recognize that David has some incredible passion. Uh, and so as we get into here, I, w- I want to set this up very quickly. So basically what's happening is there, there's the Philistines on one side of the valley, this side of the room. You guys are going to be the Philistines, all right? Excited about that. Yeah. All right. So, so this side of the room, you guys are the Israelites, all right? Yeah. Jo- Johnny's excited to be an Israelite. He's passionate. That's right. Okay, so we got the Philistines over here. Sorry, guys. We got the Israelites over here, um, and and there's a valley in between. And so the Philistines have this general, this warrior named Goliath, and you know all about him. And next week we're actually going to look at how tall he actually was, and there's some different theories about that, and we'll we'll discuss that. But we know he was massive, right, this large man, this incredible warrior. And he steps out, and he says, you know what, to to prevent a bunch of bloodshed instead of our army fighting against your, your army, We'll do what, what we call representative combat. And this was a common practice in this day and age. So I'm going to be the champion for the Philistines, and I'm going to step up. And if I win, then our army wins. And, and you send an, a, a warrior from your side. And if he beats me and he kills me, then the Israelites win. And, and there was a great idea. The problem was there was no Israelite who was willing to face him. And so for 40 days and 40 nights, Goliath, this Philistine warrior, steps out, and he defies the armies of Israel. He, he starts throwing every slur, every insult he can think of. He's like that kid on the playground 
uh, who, who's got all the yo mama jokes trying to make you mad, right? Like he's talking about your mama and your God and, and your, your king and your army and your people and you stink and your women don't shave their armpits. And he's just going off, right? Like everything that he can think of, he, he's throwing it down uh, against the Israelites. And despite all of that, not one Israelite steps up and says, you know what, I'm going to shut this guy up. I'm going to step up and do it. So for 40 days, Goliath defies Israel. And for 40 days, they don't do anything. And we're going to study this today because I believe it always takes someone with passion to push through and do something great for God. I don't think people who are not passionate are going to be used by God in the same way. So, so my question for you as we get ready is, are you a passionate person? Are you a passionate person, number one? And number two, are, are you passionate about the right things? Because I think if we're all honest, we're all passionate about something. You might be passionate about Star Wars. Uh, you might be passionate about your football team. You might be passionate uh, about some other thing. But are you passionate about the things that matter most? Uh, and, and I want to help you. I'm going to give you four characteristics from the story of David of passionate people, four things that I think you can apply and I can apply as we pursue deeper passion for the things that matter most. But then I'm also going to give you just five tips at the very end of our message today, just five things you can write down that, that will hopefully speak to you on how you can increase your passion or rediscover your passion. If, if you look today and you say, you know what, I'm not as passionate as I used to be. You know what, my passion for God, I used to be at like an eight or a nine, but today I'm at a four. If you're in that place, there's no condemnation, but I, I'm going to tell you this, you can get that passion back. And I believe that God wants you to have that passion back. Amen. All right, so since we're all passionate people and people who desire to be passionate, desire to be, we're going to take notes. So get your notepad out. If you didn't bring one and you weren't that passionate this morning, you can be passionate enough to get your phone out. I'm going to give you permission to take notes on your phone today because this message is that important. But that's not permission to, to tweet. That's not permission to text. It's permission to, to take notes, all right? So 1 Samuel chapter 17, the day that David went to fight Goliath, he didn't wake up that morning. All right, today's the day I get to kill the war. He didn't wake up that morning thinking he was going to fight. He didn't wake up that morning knowing he was going into a battle. He woke up that morning knowing that he had an errand to run for his dad. But it was in that seemingly insignificant mission that his father gave him that his destiny was truly discovered. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 17. We don't know exactly how old David was at this point, but we do know that he was a teenager, probably somewhere between the age of 14 and 16. We know he was tending his father's sheep, and we know that, that he was the man who was chosen to go play harp to soothe King Saul. That's what we know about him at this point. 1 Samuel 17, 17 says, Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. So basically he's saying you've got some brothers who are off at war. We don't know how many brothers were there. We know at least three of them because they'll pop up in the story, potentially as many as seven. In fact, likely all seven of his older brothers are at war, and, and David's the only one at home. But, but some number of brothers are there, and, and Dad says, I want to know that they're okay. I'm going to have you take, take a care package to them, deliver some stuff to them, and, and I want you to get a report on how is the battle going. Verse 19, he says, They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Verse 20, early in the morning. Everybody say early in the morning. Early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. 
Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his thing with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, say ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. You didn't have to say that, but that's cool. Thank you. I didn't tell you not to, so, you know, I didn't say Simon says don't repeat. Uh, there's a simple instruction that David thought he was following. Take some bread, take some cheese to your brothers. And, and, and imagine David's opportunity in this moment. Um, he had the chance to feel dishonored. Had the chance to feel like this is so insignificant. All my other brothers get to fight, and I'm the delivery boy. I've been anointed the king of Israel. And you're going to, I've already been chosen. That's already happened. And in that moment, he could have been offended. He could have said, no, I'm not going to, you can find somebody else to be your Domino's delivery boy. That's not me. I've got a bigger purpose. I've got a bigger mission. But that's not David at all. In fact, I love the language, the things that I had to repeat. So number one, early in the morning, as, as, you're good. You don't have to repeat. Sorry. I said, he's, the, the scripture says early in the morning. You're good. I like it. I'd rather have you repeat too much than not at all. So good. Early in the morning, and secondly, it says, ran to the battle lines. Ran to the place of battle. And, and we see it evidenced right here. So the first thing I want you to write down, the first characteristic of passionate people is this. Passionate people carry out small assignments with a willing spirit. Passionate people carry out small assignments with a willing spirit. Why David? In a nation of warriors, in, in a nation that was familiar with warfare, in a nation that many times had already gone out to war, why is it that David is the one who God uses to slay Goliath? Because David was a passionate person. And he was a passionate person even when it seemed like there was something to be all that passionate about. See, David did not wake up with an assignment. His dad didn't say, David, there's a giant out there defying the armies of God, and I believe that God wants you to go and to kill him. So wake up and arise early and run to the battlefield and take him out for God and country. Right? That's something to get passionate about, right? That's something that would get you fired up. You might be scared. You might be intimidated. But there would be something in you that says, you know what? I've got an opportunity to do something great for God, and I believe every one of us wants to do something great for God. But that wasn't the conversation. He said, David, I've got some snacks for you to take to your brothers. I want you to take them to your brothers, and I want you to come back and tell me how the battle's going. That's not an assignment that most of us would get that excited about. I've got to walk miles to the battle. I've got to go see my brothers who hate me, by the way, because I was the one anointed king of Israel, and they weren't. And I'm the littlest one, and they've got a sword on them. This could not go well for me, right? Like, like I'm sure David is like, but even despite that opportunity, even despite that voice that says, this is below you, David. Somebody else could do this. Anybody could do this. David greets his small assignment with a willing spirit. The first time that I ever did the Daniel fast was back in 2006. I got hired here in the fall of 2005 as the youth pastor. And the pastor who started the church, his name is Jason Delgado. And Pastor Jason uh, pulled us together as a staff, I don't know, the end of December, the beginning of January, and said, we're going to be leading our church in the Daniel Fast, and so that means the staff, you've got to do it. Uh, and so I, I was 25 years old, bachelor, lived off of fast food, you know, like had no clue how to cook anything, uh, and I'm supposed to do this thing for 21 days and survive on it. Needless to say, I was thrilled, 
Yes, I picked the right place to work. Uh, thanks, Pastor Jason. Uh, so I did not go into it with a good attitude, right? Like I went to it very grudgingly. Uh, and I made it to day three. And uh, day three rolled around, and I decided that I was going to cheat a little bit. Uh, I decided, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some dairy. Like, I'm not going to have meat. I'm going to leave that because the, the Scripture specifically says he didn't eat meat, but it doesn't say he didn't have dairy. So even though the, the instructions say we're not going to do this, I'm going to have some cheese because I am dying. Uh, and, and so I, I went through Taco Bell drive through and, and I ordered three soft tacos with nothing but cheese. And, and I was going to have my moment of compromise, and Pastor Jason was never going to know, and it was going to be all good. I was going to survive. Just being real. You might have just totally lost respect for your pastor, but this is just where I was at. So I did this, uh, and I got my three tacos, and as I drive out of the drive-thru, I realized that three tacos, nothing but cheese, to them meant three tacos with meat and cheese. Uh, and so now I've got a decision to make. The temptation, man, the enemy is in my ear. No one will know. You didn't try to get the meat. It's not your fault. And I said, get thee behind me, Satan. And I threw them in the trash, and I knocked out the rest of the Daniel fast. No, that's not what happened at all. I ate all three of those tacos, every bite, and I loved it. Didn't even feel guilty in the moment. It was awesome. Praise God you made meat, and meat is good. And then the next morning, I had to go to work. And I get there, and I see Pastor Jason and Pastor Doug and other people on staff, and they're struggling through the Daniel fast, and I'm feeling good. And conviction strikes. So I asked Pastor Jason, I was like, man, can, can I meet with you today? I, I need to confess something. And so he made some time for me, and I go into his office, and I think I'm getting fired. But I've got my integrity. I have to tell him what I have done. I'm sorry, but I cheated on a Daniel fast, and I had tacos last night, and I'm not worthy to be a pastor, and, you know, just boo-hooing. And uh, he was very gracious and very kind and accepted my, my apology. And if, if I'd have been really thinking, I would have gone out of there and said, you know what, I tripped up last night, but I'm going to continue in my commitment, and I'm going to walk this thing out. But I didn't. That was the end of my first Daniel fast. Two and a half days is all that I made it. Uh then 2012 rolls around, and, and this beautiful, special lady that my wife has blessed me with says, you know what, we should do a Daniel fast to start the year. And I'm like, what are you saying? I had already had a bad experience, right? Like, it's one thing when you've tried something and had some success, but when you had a bad experience, you're like, no, I'm not doing that again. But, but she kind of laid out the vision. She's like, you know what, man, this is the year that we were planning on moving that year. We were going to pursue some things that God had for us, and uh, we were leaving actually in like three months. I mean, we really need to be as close to God as we've ever been. I think we really need to do this. And I said, okay, I'll try it. I'm not making any promises. I'm not making any commitments. I might make it three days, but I'll do it with you until I don't. That was as much of a commitment as I would make. But, but what I discovered is I got into it. We got four days in and six days in and, and ten days in. And you know what? Not only is this possible now that I actually know how to cook some things and have a partner who knows how to cook some things and I, I can actually survive, but more importantly than that, I saw that I was growing. I saw that God was speaking to me. I saw the benefit that I was getting from setting this aside. And so here we are five years later. I did a Daniel fast at the beginning of 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015. Now I'm eight days from the end of my Daniel fast in 2016. Why am I doing this? Well, my attitude is completely 
Now I'm the one saying, we're doing a dinner. It starts with you. Why? Be- because I see the benefit, and now I'm passionate about it. Now I'm giving you guys the opportunity. I'm not trying to give you an, like an, a commercial for the Daniel fast. What I'm saying is attitude is all the difference. The Daniel fast is exactly the same today as it was in 2006. The rules haven't changed. The things that you can eat haven't changed. What's changed is simply my attitude. The difference that attitude makes. And everybody in this room, if I pass the microphone around, you could share from your own life something that you've seen. Man, when I had a good attitude, this thing was awesome. And when I had a bad attitude, it was terrible. But really what it comes down to is is people who are passionate are going to embrace power fasting with a willing attitude. Secondly, passionate people must guard their strength or it will become a double evil. I want to zoom out from this story for just a minute. David, in, in later on in his life, makes a grave mistake, makes an awful mistake. And as he makes that terrible mistake, he actually goes back to one of his first loves. He goes back to his harp. His, his harp is one of the ways that he expresses his love to God. And he gets along with God, and he writes this great psalm of repentance. If you're ever in a dark place spiritually, read Psalm 51. Read it out loud. Read it as a prayer between you and God. It is an incredible step to, to read readdressing your walk with him, to getting things right, to repenting. So in this psalm, Psalm 51, verse 12, he makes this statement. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I need that willing spirit again. You see, David was praying after he sinned, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he tried to cover it up, went to such, a, such an extreme that he actually murdered her husband. What I want to say, most of this message is to those of us who maybe our passion isn't where it needs to be. Maybe our passion isn't where it used to be. But, but I want to say for just a second, if you are a person of passion, if passion marks you, and I'm not even just saying spiritually, just in general, if you're a high passion person, that same thing that God gave you for a strength, the enemy can use for your weakness. If you are a passionate person, you need to be aware of the fact that you can fall very strongly. Because I think it was the same impulsiveness in David that hurt a giant insulting his God that said, we can't let him say that. That's not who my God is. i got to shut that guy up. That same impulsiveness is what caught him when he was scanning from his palace and he saw a woman naked taking a bath and said, I want that. Bring me her. That same impulsiveness that God used so greatly was the impulsiveness that the enemy used to harm him and, and to destroy what God was doing in his life. So if you're a person of passion, if you acquire the things that we are talking about in this message, let me just put the, the, the disclaimer out there. There's danger that can come with that. That passion must be harnessed in the right direction. When I was a youth pastor here, um, even, even after being a youth pastor, man, one of the things that's marked me, I, I think God's placed in me a, a passion for young people. God's placed in me a passion to see young people know him to see young people worship him, to see young people connect with him. Uh, and, and that is something that I've been passionate about for a very long time. So when I first was hired in 2005, I came, and one of the first things we did is we started this discipleship program. And so early on in 2006, we did our very first, we called it LTE, short for Live the Experience. And we started this discipleship program with young people for eight weeks. And we made it to week eight, and I had done really, really well. And, man, people were into it, and, and things went great. And so le- week eight, we decided we're going to have this at somebody's house. Instead of doing it at my apartment, um, there, there was a home in the church. They wanted to open up, kind of let us celebrate, cap it off. So we went to their house, and things went great. Uh, and and I, I got ready to leave, and I, I talked to the family there. And I was like, hey, 
Um, there's a few students to the left. You want me to hang out? And they're like, no, they're fine. Their rides are coming. You can go home. Get out of here. So I left, and there was like five students still there. And then I, get, I found out the next morning from Pastor Jason, actually, that on the way out, one of those students, in fact, the only senior in the youth ministry at that point in time, my oldest, allegedly most responsible student, uh, had run over their mailbox uh, and left it and sp- sped off uh, as they watched. Uh, and I lost it. I was so mad. I was like, you know what that does to our youth ministry? Like, we're trying to build a name in this church. We're trying to demonstrate our responsibility. We're trying to show that these students are different. I was hot. So it was a couple of days later before I saw this student. This student wanted to be in ministry. He would show up early to help set up and, and get things done. And so he shows up early before anybody else, and I got my one-on-one chance with him. And I was like, yeah, so I heard you uh, bumped into something on the way out from the house the other day. And he's like, you know about that? Uh, and I'm like, yeah, everybody knows about that. He's like, I, th- I didn't think anybody saw me. Like, and then I proceeded to go off on this kid. Um, I mean, I yelled, I screamed, I said things that I wish I had not said and should not have said. And, and I was right in my anger. What he did was absolutely wrong. And, and the opportunity to teach him some things was, was a great one for me to take. But I squandered that opportunity because the same passion that I had for those kids, I translated it into that anger, and I missed the chance that God had for me to actually give this kid something that he could learn from. All he heard was my youth pastor yelled at him. He didn't get anything out of what I had to say. He didn't get anything out of the confrontation. He just knew that I was mad. So I missed my chance, and we could translate that into a lot of different things. But if you're a person of passion, be warned. The enemy is going to try to unleash that passion in the wrong direction. That opportunity is going to come, and you're going to have to make sure that you keep that harnessed. Number three thing to write down is passionate people interpret intimidation as an invitation. I love this. I love this idea. Here's David. He's never been in a battle. He's just back home tending sheep. And then in verse 23, it says, as he was talking with them, talking with his brothers, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out and from his lines, and shouted the usual defiance, and David heard it. Day 40, the giant says the same thing he's been saying for 39 days, nothing different about what he had to say, nothing different about his message. The only thing that was different was somebody with passion heard it. Verse 24, when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Did David hear anything different than the rest of the Israelites did? He heard the same threat. He saw the same man. David wasn't blind. It's not like he was ignorant of the fact that he was large. David wasn't deaf. He wasn't ignorant of the things that he was saying. David had the same opportunity for intimidation that these trained warriors had. And yet David interpreted it completely different. They ran that way. We're going to see as we get next week and later on in chapter 17, David runs this way. David runs two the mark, to the valley to face off with Goliath. What was it about David that when everybody else ran away, he said, I'm going to run too? It was passion. Absolutely, it was his passion. See, he interpreted, because of his passion, he interpreted the intimidation differently. It's not that David didn't have the opportunity to be intimidated. It's not that David was bigger than Goliath. It's not that David had any special thing about him that said, well, you can't hurt me. What did David do? David heard what was said, but he applied it against the word of God. And he says, God's word says that's not who God is. My God 
That's not who he is. My God promises that he's going to be with me. He's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me. So David interpreted it through the lens of God's word. The rest of the Israelites just interpreted it through the natural. That dude's big, and he's mean, and he kills people, and I don't want any part of him. One of the things that I've always loved about 9-11, and it's funny to say that you love something about 9-11, but, but I love the concept of, of hundreds of people flooding out of the World Trade Centers and a few firemen landing. The courage. Man, I, there, there's something about that that inspires me. That while everybody else is trying to get as far away from the situation as they can, you would say, you know what? There's something there for me to accomplish. There's somebody there for me to help. I'm going in to the fray. And I think that's exactly what David said. Everybody else was running away. But David said, no, I'm a person of passion. I'm a person with a calling on my life. I'm a person who believes the word of God, and I'm not going to let this happen. I'm not going to let anybody defame my nation, my God, my people. He heard the same voice. He heard the same threats. He heard the same intimidation. But he was the only one who interpreted that intimidation through the lens of the word of God. We have to begin to learn to reinterpret the intimidation. I don't know what intimidates you. I don't know what you see in culture, what you see in society, what you see in life. And, and deep down inside, you're like, man, that's not right. That doesn't line up with the way things should be. That doesn't line up with the heart of God. That doesn't line up with, with what I believe should happen. And, and yet, it's just, man, that's just the way things are going. That's just the day and age that we live in. That's just the generation. So many times, I think as Christians, we shrink back from opportunity, and we just think, you know what, well, that's just how things are. That's not how they have to be. God did not create us to shrink back. God did not call us to shrink back. God created us and called us and anointed us and gifted us to step up. And we need to be willing to step up into the very center of the struggle, just as David did. Number four, last characteristic of passionate people I want to give you before we get to our text very quickly at the end. Number four, passionate people will fight to the finish in the battles that matter the most. See, passionate people don't just start, they finish. This is one area that the rest of this message, man, I told you last week, like, this is not me. Like, I was really hesitant to even preach last week because, like, I don't live up to this, and so I feel unworthy of it. This week, most of this message is kind of like my sweet spot. Like, I'm, I'm a passionate person, right? And, and being a passionate person doesn't mean you have to cry while you hold a microphone. Like, I, rest, I wrestled with God with that for, like, two years, and nothing changed. And finally, I was like, okay, this is who I am. I give up. You win. Um, like it's, it's not the only way to be passionate, but it's certainly a, a piece of my passion. But this is one thing, like, I'm pretty passionate in general, but I'm not always good at finishing. And David was a finisher. He didn't just get passionate when he heard Goliath's threats and, and go to the other Israelites and rally the troops. He didn't just get passionate and go before Saul because he'd been the harpist for Saul and he had access to the king and, and go have a conversation and then leave it at that. David actually pursued that passion, allowed that passion to work in him to bring this thing to completion. And what we'll see next week, he's going to kill the giant. What we'll see the week after that is he didn't just stop at killing him. He cuts his head off. He was a finisher. And, and passionate people are going to finish. They're going to fight to the finish in the battles that matter the most. Before we look at how David killed Goliath, what we'll see next week, before we see his method, I want to set the preface of his motives. Why did David kill Goliath? I think we get his motives from verse 26. It says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace 
from Israel. So, so first he asks, what's the, what's the physical reward here? I know that there's a reward. I know that King Saul has put some sort of a reward out, so what is it? And you probably know the reward was the hand of his daughter in marriage, his daughter Michael. So that was the reward. So he wanted to know what's the, what's the physical. Side note here, a lot of times people say, uh, man, we should tell people to give because they're going to be blessed. Man, we should tell people to give because it's the right thing to do. And giving is absolutely the right thing to do. But guess what? God's word says that when we give, when we honor God, we'll be blessed with it. Uh, and, and I think there, there's a reason. Not that that should ever be our number one top reason and, and motivation, but God understands, just like David understood here, man, sometimes some extra motivation doesn't hurt. Uh, so he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you if you honor me. And, and the, David was going to be taken care of. And then there was another part of this, too. He didn't have to pay taxes for the rest of his life. Uh, which didn't really help David that much because he spent the rest of his life on the run the next 40 years until he became the king, and the king doesn't have to pay taxes. But he didn't know that in this moment. In this moment, he thought, sweet, I don't ever have to pay taxes. Um, but then he says this, and this, I believe, is his true motivation. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Goliath offended David's sense of what was can't talk about my God. You can't talk about my dad. You can't talk about my people. These are my brothers. This is my nation. I'm not going to talk like that. That's not what I'm going to let happen. And he was so passionate about the things that he loved, about the people in his life, about the God that he served, that he stepped up and he fought the battle. So as we wrap up, I want to give you just, these are not from David. These are just some things that I feel like God laid on my heart. In fact, this part was added this morning. The rest of this message was today. And as I was driving in this morning, I felt like, you know what? I can't just leave them with four characteristics. I got to give them just some real practical stuff. So if you're here today and you're not as passionate as you want to be, you're not as passionate as you used to be, or you just don't think you're a passionate person at all, I want to give you five things that can help jumpstart your passion, help reinvigorate your passion, help you get back to where you once were, and even beyond that. So, so write these down with me. Number one, if you want to, to be passionate about the things that matter most, the number one thing I can tell you to do is just to experience God's presence. Just get in God's presence. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're not passionate about your walk with God right now, I dare say you probably haven't tasted anything in forever. Because when you taste and see that he's good, you're going to be excited about and when you experience God's presence, when you actually have that moment where you know that you're in his presence, there's a passion that's going to come along with it. So, so how do I get in God's presence? How do I experience God's presence? Uh, through prayer, through worship. Man, the Bible says that, that he inhabits the praises of his people. How do you experience his presence? Uh, in his word, uh, around his people, but primarily it's one-on-one. It's intentional. It's setting that time aside. See, a lot of times we get it backwards. A lot of times we think, when I get passionate about God, well, then I'm going to have a daily time of reading. When I get passionate about God, well, then I'm really going to spend some time with him. Then we'll get intimate. But that's not really how it works. Usually it works the other way around. Usually the passion is going to follow the action. When I step out in faith, when I step out and do the right thing, the passion is going to follow. So begin to experience God's presence. Number two, invest in God's people. We've all seen the person who maybe was kind of a marginal fan of a team. And for whatever reason, the team had a great year or whatever, they, they just decided, you know what, I'm all in on this team. 
this is my team. I'm talking smack for this team. They go out and they spend $200 and they get every jacket, every shirt, every jersey, right? Like they're, they're on that team side. And so now that person, that team gets to a playoff game or a bowl game or whatever it is. Now that person cares a lot more. Why? Because they've invested. Because they're representing. Because they've got the name on their shirt. And now when the team blows it in that playoff game or that bowl game, they are so upset. I can't believe I just spent $200 and you're going to go out and do this. Why do they care so much more? They're invested. That's why Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, in our mind, we think that our treasure will follow our heart, but Jesus says it's the opposite. He says my heart will follow my treasure. The thing that I invest in is the thing I'm going to become passionate about. So when I say invest, do I just mean giving an offering and I mean your time, your talent, your treasure. Where are you investing those things? What what are you putting those into? And if you will begin to invest in God's kingdom more, if you begin to invest in the things that God cares about, you're going to discover you start to care about the things that God cares about. You start to care more about him. You invest. Number three, this is specifically for those in the room who would say, I'm not as close to God as I used to be. I'm not as passionate about the things of God as I once was. If that's you, this advice is is for you. Number three, go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. In other words, what are the things that you were doing at that point when you were passionate? Maybe you say, man, I was really passionate about God uh, at, when I went to this retreat, or I went to this conference, or I went to this camp, or I went on this mission trip, or I was really passionate about God in this season of my life when I was in this small group, or in this Bible study, or I was really passionate about God when, whatever that is, fill in the blank. What were you doing at that point in life? What, what was it that, that was causing you to, to be excited to enter into worship? What was it that was causing you to be excited to spend time with God? Do the things that you did at the beginning. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. This is Jesus talking to the church in Ephesus. He says, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent, and check this out. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you're here today and you're not as passionate about God as you once were, repent and do the things you did at first. In other words, the, the emotion is going to come after the action does. Side note, this is also great advice. If you're not passionate about something else in life, you're not passionate about your marriage anymore, you're not passionate about your kids anymore, you're not passionate about your job anymore, man, when you first got that job, you showed up early, you made sure that your uniform was ironed, you looked good, and now you're like, oh, I don't give a about this job anymore, Right? Being real, right? Repent and do the things you did at first. Keep praying for God to get you a better job or get you a promotion or get you a raise or whatever that is. But in the meantime, while you're in the job, be passionate about it. You're going to enjoy it more. You're going to get more out of it. It's going to benefit you more. But but when it comes to the things of God especially, if, if you, man, if you used to go to church and when you got to church, you couldn't wait to enter into worship and raise your hands and now you're just kind of maybe a finger... You know, if they tell me to raise my hands, I'll raise my hands. But I'm just going through the motions. I'm not here to condemn you today if that's you. I'm just here to tell you God's got something way better. And you can have that same passion again. And if you've ever been passionate about God, I know there's something inside you that wants that passion back. If you've ever had a season in life where you were in love, madly in love with Jesus, there's something in you that is not content that you're not there right now. So repent. Do the things you did at first. Number four thing, just step out in faith. 
step out in faith. In other words, uh, if you're not passionate about God right now, it's a great time to go share your faith, to begin to, to witness to somebody. It's a great time to get involved in a ministry, to, to do something you've never done before. It's a great time to get signed up here in a couple of weeks for a city group, even though maybe that intimidates you to be in, in, in that close to other people. Man, take that step. Step out in faith. Invest. When you do, what you're going dis- to discover is once you've stepped out there, God's got to deliver. And there's no greater place to be than when you're counting on God. There's no better place to be. You know, when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, famous thing we call the Lord's Prayer, he makes this statement in the Lord's Prayer that most of us in this room, we've never been able to pray the way that the disciples knew how to pray it. He said, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, the disciples knew how to depend on God for their very meals. Most of us in America, we never had to depend on God to be able to eat. Most of us, man, we got that taken care of. God can take care of other things, but, but we've got that taken care of. And I'm grateful for that. I'm not, like, desiring to be poor. But I do think there's something that we miss out on when we don't have a desperation for God to show up in our life. So step out in faith. Put something out there and watch God have to show up. If you've never given, man, step out and give beyond what you're able to where God has to move, where God has to respond. And he will. I promise you he will. And then you're going to get passionate about it as he does. And number five, and most importantly, if you're not that passionate today, remember Jesus' passion. You know, it's interesting that the 2,000 years of the church, we, we've associated this word passion with Jesus' suffering up to and including the cross. And the reason for that is there's a Greek word that means to suffer that, that is used in, in the Greek passages about Jesus numerous times leading up to his crucifixion. And that, that word is pascho, P-A-S-C-H-O. And when it's translated into Latin, it was translated passio, P-A-S-S-I-O, and into English as passion. And so I'm not talking about this kind of passion today. I'm not talking about you need to suffer. Uh, man, yes, sometimes there's going to be things we have to endure, we have to suffer through. Uh, that God calls us to, but I'm not somebody who believes that God just wants you to suffer. I believe God wants you to be blessed. God wants to do something in your life. But I do think it's awesome that Jesus was so passionate about God and so passionate about us that he was willing to go through that. And I think that if we look back at the cross, if we remember what he did, our passion is going to be reinvigorated. Look at this, Hebrews 12, 2, speaking about Jesus. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what we need to do if we're not passionate. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. In other words, Jesus wasn't passionate about the cross. Jesus wasn't passionate about the suffering. He prayed, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Jesus? What was Jesus so passionate about? I believe it was two things. If I had time, I'd prove it to you scripturally, but for now, you can take my word for it, hopefully. Jesus was passionate about two things. Number one, he was passionate about the will of his Father. Passionate about the glory of God. And we need some people in this generation who are passionate about the glory of God. Who are passionate about the will of God. Who are passionate and committed to do what God called them to do, no matter what. But I believe the second thing Jesus was passionate about was you and me salvation of mankind. You see, Scripture says that the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save that which was lost. So he endured the cross. He wasn't excited for the cross, but he endured it because he saw what was on the other side of it. He saw you, 
and he saw me. And if we remember what Jesus suffered for us so that we can be restored to relationship with God, if we remember the nails that went through his wrists, if we remember the thorns in his, in his brow, if we remember the 39 lashes he took on his back, that he was beaten so badly that the Bible says you couldn't even recognize who he was. If we remember that that is what he did for us, it's in those moments that I'm most passionate about God. When I realize how much I meant to him. When I realized how much he loved me, in fact, the Bible says we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. So if you need some passion today, if you need a shot of passion, if you need to reinvigorate your passion, go back to the cross. Go back to what Jesus did for you. And I dare you to gaze upon Jesus' sacrifice, to gaze upon Jesus' passion, and to not feel something in response. It can't be done. It can't be done. I believe that God wants us to be passionate. I believe that God's called us to be passionate. I believe that the greatest commandment is the greatest commandment for a reason. Because God's not after our head. He's not after our hands. Number one, he's after our heart. And if God doesn't fully have your heart today, hopefully you can take this message and apply it and begin to give him more and more of your heart until you get to that point. So I'm going to do two things. I'm going to ask everybody to stand up, if you would. And I'm going to pray. And after I pray, I'm going to ask two questions. First, I'm going to ask you, if you're here and you're far from God, you don't know Jesus, if you need to take that step towards him today, I'm going to give you that opportunity. May or may not be anybody responds to that. Last week I think we had five, which was awesome. Seven total between the two services. Super cool. The second question I want to ask you that, that I think is for everybody in this room is if you're here today and this message was for you and your passion is not where you feel like it should be, not where it once was, or, or you feel like you're not passionate at all, but you want to be, uh, I want to pray for you specifically. Uh, and believe that God's going to inject his spirit into you, give you a fresh touch, and enable you to walk out these steps and to walk in passion. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God.